Hey guys, welcome back to Caffeine and Crime. Today I have season two, episode two. This will be the Ted Bundy part two. So if you guys did not catch last week's part, make sure you jump over there because you're gonna be a little bit behind once I get started with this because we are already in the crime. I do have a couple updates that I just want to say real quick before I get into uh, this week's episode. For one, I want to say thank you guys so much for your love of coming back to my podcast for season two. It means the world to me. I know that there was um, a little bit of a break between season one and season two, so um, I didn't really know what to expect with that, but thank you guys if you guys are coming back and now listening to season two. Season two is going to be a crazy ride compared to season one, let me tell you. And you guys will see that with this episode for sure. So for one thing, I wanted to update you guys on the giveaway that I currently have going on. I'm giving away a little bit of caffeine, a little bit of crime with a true crime book. It's actually the book by Liz Kendall um, that you guys will hear in the story. Liz was Ted Bundy's longtime girlfriend. She wrote a book and her daughter Molly um, has a section in the book as well. It was a really good read so I wanted to have that book for my first giveaway and then I wanted to give you guys some um, caffeine as well so there's also a gift card to Starbucks. You can find that giveaway over on my Instagram at caffeine crime podcast and the steps are all there on how to enter. A lot of people have entered by sharing it in their stories, so thank you so much for the love and support. Um, but you can also, so I can find you a little bit easier, uh, leave me a comment under that post with the book and the card, um, your favorite Starbucks order. It would be a lot easier for me to find everybody and see who all's entered because I know some of you lovely people have definitely shared it in your stories and I really appreciate that still. Uh, that giveaway ends tomorrow, so um, after you listen to this is on my True Crime Tuesdays. Wednesday, I will be announcing the winner of that in my stories and I kind of explained it on that post with everything going on with COVID-19. I'm not really sure when I will be out of my house next to ship that off for you, but I will work that out with you in the messages for whoever wins that. And speaking of COVID-19, I hope you guys are all doing okay and staying safe. I hope today's episode will be a little bit of an escape from what's going on in the world right now. It is awful and my thoughts and prayers are out there with you if you are going through a hard time right now. And my last um, update before we jump into today's episode is just that I briefly said something in my stories on Instagram about it, but I wanted to um, say it here too as well that I am no longer doing Caffeine Crime YouTube. Um, I feel like a lot of the time on the YouTube, YouTube platform with that, I have found out that the true crime community is a little bit harsh and there's a lot of extra work that goes into getting those videos up for you guys too at the same time as well as balancing out all the other things I have going on. And then when I factored in that the majority of you guys are listening to me on a platform um, for podcast. I was like, okay, screw it. We're just doing podcasts from now on. I feel like it's going to be easier. I'll definitely leave season one up there if people want to go check it out. Um, but it's just a lot of extra work. And I really had this whole thing planned out for it for this season. And I really wanted to do it. But at the end of the day, I want to make sure my content is here for you guys in the podcast really nicely and not so much. Um, over on the YouTube aspect of it. Plus, last week with um, the technical difficulties I had going on with my mic, I'm not really sure what that was. So I do apologize um, if the 
annoying noises were driving you insane. I'm hoping with this setup that I have now for this episode, I'll be able to catch it if it starts making any of those noises. But I do apologize if there is some throughout that I miss. So let's go ahead and jump in to part two of Ted Bundy. We left off in 1974. We are towards the end of 1974 in this case, and Liz is very suspicious. It's around Christmas time of 74, and she just is really scared to go home like she normally does to Utah to see her family um, because Ted is now living in Utah, so she's going to have to see him. And if he did find out, would he try to kill her? So Liz called her dad one morning and told him about her suspicions of Ted and asked if he could contact local police. He knew and look into it discreetly. There was a long pause before her dad finally said, you have to be certain about something like this before, before pushing it further. If it wasn't the case, this could ruin Ted's career and his life. When she seemed unsure, he told her that he wouldn't be in the middle of it and things would just have to just go on from there. He couldn't imagine ruining an innocent man's life because he hadn't seen this side of Ted. When she landed in Utah, Ted was there. He hugged and welcomed her and Molly. Ted showed Liz his apartment, the law school, the places he hung out at. Her dad called to make sure that she was okay, and since Ted seemed so fine, she said yes. The holidays were great with everyone together. Ted acted like the perfect gentleman. He would play with Molly, help Liz's mom cook, and spent all of his time with them. After the holidays, Liz was back home in Seattle. Ted promised to be there in a couple of weeks when his semester was over to visit. Jumping into 1975, on January 12th, Karen Campbell, 23, was on vacation with her fiancé and his children in Snowmass, Colorado. They were in a common area in a hotel by the fireplace enjoying the evening. Karen decided to go up to her room to grab a magazine and bring down to look through. She got to the elevator and was never seen again. She was a nurse from Michigan. She had been vacationing with her fiancé. Um, they were about to get married, and there was eyewitnesses who seen her get on that elevator. Her body was found 36 days later. She was nude and about three miles away in a snowbank on Owl Creek Road in Aspen. That was February 18th, and more than likely she had been raped. Although her body was disturbed by animals, it was determined that she died a couple hours after her last dinner with her fiancé that evening before they were relaxing by the fireplace. Before Ted came back to Seattle, um, Liz just kind of had like this weird, strange feeling about him still. And although her time with him in Utah had been great, she decided that she still wanted to call the Utah police and check on things there to see if everything was still um, being looked at with all the cases being more linked together. She called and got a woman on the phone who asked who was calling, but Liz didn't want to say. Finally, after being put on hold, the captain answered. After telling them about being from Seattle and that her Ted lived there, they put two and two together and said, we looked into him a while ago when Seattle police contacted us. They asked if something else had happened and she said, no, I was just worried. They told her not to worry. He was checked out already. Ted called Liz crying and was so unhappy, saying he did awful on his finals and didn't know what to do. He said he was doing awful there and wasn't connecting with people, that something was wrong with him, and he said he wasn't coming and she tried to convince him to come anyway. He said he would call and let her know. He called and said he wasn't coming, then he called back later and said he was coming. 
Finally, when the day arrived, she picked him up from the airport and he was in a great mood. He had a brochure from a ski resort in Aspen. Ted said it was from a man on the plane. The visit was a nice one. Liz actually felt so awful and guilty about calling the police on him in the first place. On March 1st, 1975, at Taylor Mountain, bodies were found of Brenda Ball, Linda Healy, Susan Raincourt, and Roberta Parks. They were just a few miles away from where the bodies of Janice Ott, George Ann Hawkins, and Denise Naslin had been found months prior. All of them abducted from different locations but connected to one individual since they were all found together. This so-called Ted was now shown as a serial killer. With little evidence because of the shape of the bodies were in from decomposing and animal scattering pieces, there was no other leads besides knowing that one person was responsible for all of this. On March 15, 1975, a ski instructor, Julie Cunningham, who was 26 from Vail, Colorado, was abducted and her body was never found. She was a part-time ski instructor, and she had agreed to meet her roommate at a bar the night of March 15, 1975. She never arrived. On April 6th of 1975, Denise Oliverson, who was 24 from Grand Junction, Colorado, was abducted and her body was never found either. After a heated argument with her husband, the 25-year-old took her push bike and made her way to her parents' house. She was abducted before she got there. Her husband reported her missing, and he had contacted her parents and discovered she never arrived. On May 6th of 1975, Lynette Cleaver, who was 12 years old, was abducted and never found. The young girl was just at her school where she was abducted. And then on June 28th, 1975, Susan Curtis, who was 15 years old, was abducted from the Bountiful Orchard Youth Conference at Brigham Young University. She was never found. In June 1975, Ted stayed with Liz and Molly for a week, doing family things like rafting and just spending time together. In July of 1975, Liz spent some time in Utah with her family and Ted. They all went fishing together and had a wonderful trip besides a few arguments between Ted and Liz. By the end of the trip, Liz wanted to know where their relationship was going and wanted to get married. And to her surprise, Ted replied with, let's do it at Christmas time then. On August 16, 1975, Liz was back in Seattle when Ted's aunt was at his mother's house visiting. They had never met, so she went to visit. While there, Ted's little brother had a new bike that Ted's mother said Ted had gotten for him when they were visiting him last. Liz knew it was stolen and was very upset. Liz went home and called Ted all evening with no answer. She didn't understand where he could have been, and around 3 a.m. she gave up on trying to get a hold of him. That same late, late night at 2.30 a.m., Ted Bundy was arrested for the very first time in Granger, Utah, after a chase by Highway Patrol. Highway Patrol went after him in the first place because he was driving his tan Volkswagen, but it was 2.30 a.m. and his headlights were off. The police found a rope, a crowbar, pantyhose mask, ski mask, gloves, and handcuffs in a brown gym bag in his Volkswagen. He was released on bail the next day. The evening of the day he was bailed out, Liz finally got a hold of him and yelled at him for stealing. She had no idea that he had been in jail during that time until later. During that phone call, Liz called off the wedding saying she wasn't going to marry him until he straightened up. He sounded relieved and told her, I want you to know that I'll always love you. She was so mad she yelled, you can just go to hell, Ted Bundy. Over the next few weeks, they stayed broken up, but would talk on the phone often. 
they would still say I love you and they knew it was time for them to both go their on their own paths, their own lives because they just kept ending up in the same spot. And then one day in September of 1975, Liz ran into Ted's old landlady from Seattle. She told Liz the funniest thing happened. A detective had come to her asking about Ted and the missing women cases. She said, can you believe that? Liz called the police the very next day on her break at work. She asked about it, and though she knew that they were lying, she was told that they were going through all the files with old information and then throwing it out once they looked at it again. That wasn't good enough, so she asked the woman detective she had talked to in the past, Kathy McChesney. And Kathy told her she was planning on calling her soon. She said Ted was arrested for trying to invade a police officer on August 16th, the same day she was visiting his family, and couldn't get a hold of him. He was arrested and charged with possession of burglary tools. Kathy asked Liz to come to the station. When she got there, Kathy asked her to go over her story once again. Although she wasn't supposed to, she pulled the photo of the objects they found in Ted's car that could have been used to find and assault someone. Kathy wrote down dates and times for Liz to go back home and think about where Ted was at those times. Over the next weeks, Liz was at the station more than she would like to be helping fill in the blanks of Ted's life. She brought in the canceled checks and told her about certain times someone went missing and Ted was elsewhere. During this time, Ted and Liz's friendship was strained and calls didn't happen as often anymore. But when they did, Liz was so confused. How could this be the same man she was talking about to the police? Kathy delivered news Liz wasn't ready for. She asked about Ted's old girlfriend, Susan Phillips, and when Ted last saw her, Liz told her that he had gone to see her during one of their splits in 73, but not since that. Susan lived in San Francisco. Kathy said they had talked to Susan and one of Susan's friends who both said Susan and Ted had a relationship in the summer of 73 and that by Christmas in 73, they were already engaged. Liz was shocked. That was the year Ted wasn't with her for Christmas at Utah, but they were on great terms. They had both bought each other chess sets that year. Later, Ted dropped her off at the airport to go see her family, and when she got back to Seattle, she knew that Ted was on a ski trip with friends using her car. She was homebound for the rest of the trip. She was home cleaning her oven on New Year's night when Ted came in. He was so happy to see her. He took her out to eat and kissed her all evening. Little did she know he was on a ski trip with Susan Phillips. She said Susan stayed in Seattle a week in August that year. It was the week after Ted wrecked Liz's car. Kathy had a photo to prove it. Kathy explained that after Christmas, Ted and Susan got in a heated discussion about abortion, and Susan said he got very mean and scared her really bad. She later called to end things. Liz explained why Ted got so upset over it and again had to discuss her own abortion with Kathy. Soon later, Liz was called back and to talk to detectives from Utah. They asked her all the personal questions again. She found out that they never showed Carol DeRanche a photo of Ted. They said that they there was a communication breakdown somewhere, even though Liz had kept pushing them to connect the dots. That evening when Liz got home, there were flowers for her with a card that said, I'll love you forever, Ted. 
Like usual, Ted started calling Liz much more often again. One day in September of 1975, he called to tell her that he was coming to Seattle. She felt very uneasy. He said he needed some to come there and stay with her while he tried to sell his Volkswagen. He had been hurting for money. She said that she would call him back, but called Kathy at home instead for advice. Kathy had told her to tell him she was uncomfortable and knew about the investigations being done on him. So Liz called Ted back and told him she knew that he had been arrested. He said, what, just for speeding? It was really nothing. I went through a stop sign and highway patrolmen picked me up. And Liz told him, no, I know that you were charged with possession of burglary tools. So Ted told her, they're harassing me. I'm just out driving. When he stopped me, he went through my car. I just had a bunch of stuff that I collected. He called it suspicious and now they're out to get me. Liz said, if it was just nothing, why did you run? And Ted said, I didn't run anywhere. The policeman got upset. That's all. I was just speeding, but he called it invading. Liz asked, why did you have those things in the car? He said, really, Liz, it was just an accumulation of junk. I had a rope from a raft in that brown bag, you know, and a crowbar that is really handy for prying cars apart or like that. The search will never hold up in court. It was clearly illegal. Who told you about it anyways? She ignored his question and she said, what about the pantyhose? He said, oh, that. I wear that under my ski mask when I'm shoveling snow. It's left over from last winter. I'm really going to get mad. Tomorrow I'm going to talk with some people here and tell them to leave me and my friends alone. I'm really ticked off. Who told you? She said, I ran into Frida at the store and she told me a woman detective had contacted her, so I called the police. He said he was calling Frida and he hung up. Later, he called her back, and he said, what did the police tell you? And she said, only that you've been arrested and charged with possession of burglary tools. And he said, what did you tell them? He was very agitated, and at this time, Liz was feeling very sorry for him. She told him, only what I know. He told her that she shouldn't worry about it, and that he was going to call his old friend, Anne Rohl, um, a woman that he worked with at the crisis clinic. On October 2nd of 1975, Ted Bundy was put in a lineup. He showed up dressed differently than he normally was, and he parted his hair differently to look like someone else. In this lineup, with him and the police standing in, he was automatically identified by Carol DeRanch, who he tried to abduct in November of 1974. Bundy was arrested and charged with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault of DeRanch. He was held in Salt Lake County Jail. No one wanted to believe he was this guy and... Many questioned Carol DeRanch, thinking she picked the wrong guy. I mean, it had been like almost a year since this has happened. How was she so certain that it was this guy, is what everyone thought. Friends of Ted surrounded him in support, saying he wasn't capable of these things. A friend of Ted brought Liz a letter. He said, and this is from her book that I'm reading now, what can I say except that I love you? What can I do except want to touch you and hold you? What can I hope for except to hope that someday we can be together forever? I can never hope to compensate for the sorrow and anguish I have caused you. This is what hurts me most, being strong. And as I am sure you have done, protect Molly from all of this if it is not already too late. I love you more and more, forever and forever. This I know is true. God love you and be with you. And then the letters just kept coming. He would say, if I regret anything in my life, then I regret not having shown you the deep love I have for you in a meaningful way to you. And should there be any desire that I want fulfilled, it is a desire to prove to you beyond a doubt that my love for you is unshakable and forever. 
On October 23rd, she received yet another letter from Ted, and she still had not wrote him back. She just didn't know what to say. He did write her another letter, and it's the same love letter, but this time it's talking about losing her and um, losing Molly and how upset and just awful he feels about where his life has went. And I definitely don't want to read all the letters in this book. I think it's a really good read if you guys are bookworms like myself to go pick up and uh, read for yourself. Um, but you can tell in this letter, he starts getting a little worried that she's not writing him back. After reading the last letter that Ted had sent her, um, she got Molly ready for bed and sat down to write him a letter when the phone rang and it was Ted. She told him that she was just sitting down to write him a letter and he told her it was about time and that he didn't know how long they'll have to talk. She interrupted him and said, I have to tell you something important, something you're not going to want to hear. She was so nervous, but she just had to tell him. She said, I had some doubts about you for a long time. I got so worried that I went to the police myself a year ago. He was silent. She said, I knew you couldn't be involved, but there were all these things that bothered me and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. He said things like what? What happened when you went to the police? And she told him all about her conversations with the King County and Salt Lake City Police. He finally told her, it's okay, you did what you had to do. If you told them the truth, then no harm has been done. Because the truth is good enough, the truth will prove me innocent. Liz was called in by Kathy to pick up her crowbar that they had from Ted's car. When she got there, she was brought into a room with three men where she had to go over every detail once again. They told her then about the credit card slips of his matching the location of a woman in Colorado. When Liz finally was able to leave, she felt sick after what she had heard and about talking about her sex life with strangers once again. She asked about the crowbar and Kathy had said that they still needed it. That night, Kathy also called her to warn her that photos were taken of her at the station, and when questions were asked about the case, if it was true, Kathy said, how could they have gotten by without telling the truth? Liz felt she had been manipulated and trapped and no longer trusted a soul in this investigation. Liz fell down a dark hole into alcoholism and started receiving more letters from Ted. All of his letters were the Ted that she knew before all of this happened, and that's why I did want to include some of these letters in this case, because it really does show you how normal he did seem, but there was just this other side of Ted that she knew all too well, too. He said, my conscience is clear and my will to clear myself is strong. I cannot sense guilt, which is not mine. Liz, I know myself as no one else can, and I know I love people in life too much to destroy one living thing. This is the knowledge which gives me the strength to stand firm against all who challenge me. The world outside may have changed, but I have not. He was so put together and just so well thought on everything that she thought, how could this be the Ted? On November 20th, 1975, Liz got a call from Ted. He was cheerful and asked, Hey, guess where I'm at? I'm sitting in my attorney's office. When I walked over here, it was starting to snow. It was so cold and fresh. I'm free. He had been released on bond. He didn't want to discuss any other details or any questions that she asked about him being linked to these cases. Ted and Liz talked often on the phone again. Liz kept her distance from the police at this point. Liz had the feeling he was seeing his attorney's assistant, Kim, that was just a good friend, as he put it. So Liz started going out. Week of Thanksgiving, Molly was spending it with Liz's parents on, in Utah. On, on Thanksgiving, Liz was getting ready when her guy friend, Lynn, was over. 
They were about to go out when Liz came out of the bathroom and Ted was standing in her kitchen. She hugged him and asked why he didn't tell her that he was coming. He said he thought she would tell him not to come. He asked her to ditch her plans and stay with him. She still didn't feel comfortable, so she said that she would talk to him later. He said, no, this is now or never. Liz, being still very uncomfortable with the situation, went out with her friends instead. Good for Liz. <laughs> Ted showed up pacing the lobby of the restaurant that Liz and her friends were at, and Liz got very upset and went to the bathroom. She was a mess, and when she came back out, he was gone. Later that night, Liz got a call from Ted from a phone booth and asked if he could come over. She said no, but that she would get a drink with him. He agreed, so she called her friend to let her know her whereabouts. Her friend was not happy with her hanging out with Ted by herself, but Liz had already told Ted that she would get a drink with him. The conversations with Ted were awkward and distant for most of the night. Finally, out walking in the fresh air, he hugged and kissed Liz. Liz, being drunk, told herself she wasn't over Ted Bundy and wanted to be with him. She knew people would be mad, but for that time, she didn't care. She confessed her love again for Ted. They spent days together doing their favorite things at their favorite places and ending the night making love, as she put it. Liz's close friend told her that she wouldn't have anything to do with her anymore if she was going to keep seeing Ted. Ted started getting paranoid about people following him and Liz. And even in one instance, Ted pulled the car into a parking lot, jumped out, as another car had followed them, and he confronted the man. He told Liz he was upset that she was there because it could be a man paid by one of the girls' families to kill him before the courts could get him, he put it. Later, Ted's attorney told him it was an officer following him and that they had apologized about the inconvenience. Over the next few months, police stalked them everywhere they went. Police would stake out Liz's house and follow them if their car pulled out. They even brought in police helicopters a few times, and when Ted or her stepped out onto the porch to go somewhere, so many unmarked police cars started up that Liz said it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500. They would drive down the street singing, I love a parade, at the top of their voices as three or four cars would follow along behind them. On days where Liz was at work, Ted would go jogging at a park nearby, and policemen would actually pant along behind him, following him. Ted started taking Liz with him everywhere, and that's honestly what Liz had always wanted for their relationship, just maybe not in this instance of being with somebody who was being charged with being a serial killer and being named as a serial killer. Everything was going good for Liz and Ted's relationship when one night at Ted's friend's house, they were having din dinner when Kim from Utah called Ted. It upset Liz, who was already drunk, and she left and went home yelling she didn't want anything to do with him. When he got to her house, he tried to use his key, but it broke in the lock. He begged her over and over before she finally let him in. With the trial coming up, Ted started using the name Christopher Robin to book planes and hotels. Using the name Ted Bundy was just far too hard. And then 1976 rolled in. Ted was traveling back and forth from Seattle to Utah. Police monitor his coming and going always. Ted got desperate to throw them off. He went so far as to push Liz out of a car into the back alley because he didn't want her in the car while the cops were on his tail. Ted was mainly in Utah, but came back to Seattle for a lie detector test to use as defense. Results came back as inconclusive. On February 23, 1976, Bundy's trial started in Salt Lake, Utah. Ted would help with his case as much as possible, but still had, but still said, I have nothing to hide. I didn't do this. 
Ted tried the case with just the judge and no jury. Liz wanted to be there, but Ted's team said no in case they tried to have her put on the stand. They didn't know what she would say and thought it would be that it would hurt the defense more than anything. Liz was mad that Kim was put up to testify, which Ted said was such a good friend to do so, and Kim was announced as Ted's girlfriend. Carol Durant testified and was very nervous and roasted by the defense as they tried to confuse her like they normally do in these instances. She pointed at him and said he did this. Ted stood up and pointed at her and said she's lying. She's lied before. She's lying now. That night, Ted called Liz and told her that girl really went through something, but she is wrong about me. Ted took the stand and confessed he lied the night he was arrested. He was paranoid about getting caught smoking marijuana and said that as he drove from the police, he threw the bag of pot out the window. Liz had never heard this side of the story. Liz flew to Utah to be with Ted on the day of the verdict. Ted was in high spirits and not worried. Liz stayed away from the court um, the day of, but Ted called her that morning. With that said, Liz got the call as soon as she stepped out of the shower that day. I believe it was from one of Ted's friends or his attorney, um, one of his attorneys, who said, Ted wants you here. When she asked why, he said he wasn't sure, but Ted wants you there. Liz went straight there and was brought into the courtroom where she found a seat next to Ted's parents. The closing statements were being done at that time. State was going through the evidence saying that it fit Ted Bundy to a T. He even pulled out a chair and sat down in it pretending to be Ted the night of the attack and showing the judge how Ted had supposedly been handcuffed or had put handcuffs on Durange. Then it was O'Connell's turn. Sounding nervous, he told the packed courtroom that the evidence could fit a lot of people and not just Ted Bundy. He suggested that Carol Durant picked him because she had seen pictures already, several pictures of Ted before the lineup. She identified Ted because she thought that that was what the police wanted her to do. And when he was done, Judge Hansen read the instructions to the jury, even though there wasn't one, and recessed the court until his decision was made. As the courtroom was clearing, Ted leaned over to me and said, that's Lewis Smith. He said Melissa Smith's father came to court every day and stared at him. The guards frisked Smith every day, afraid that he would try to shoot the man he believed had killed his daughter. So that night, they went out to a tavern together with some friends. They played pool. And Liz got to kind of see the hangout where Ted normally was at when he was in Utah. She got to talk to some of the people he knew. And one girl he talked to, she had told her that they had been going together since 1969. And... This girl said, now, isn't it odd that he's never mentioned you? Later, alone in the car, Ted, she told him about it, and he tried to make a joke out of it. He grabbed her hand, and he said he was sorry, and that if he could only have another chance, he would shout his love for her from the rooftops. She told him, I love you, and I'm sorry I brought it up. I know you love me. At the next stop at a friend's apartment, he introduced Liz as his fiance. This man so wishy-washy, I tell you. This friend was a little standoffish to Liz. He had told them that he was interviewed by the police, too, and that they told him that Liz had spilled some stuff about Ted. And he said, is that true? And after an awkward silence, Ted just kind of stepped in and said that he was sick of talking about police and witnesses and trials and wanted to just forget about it that night. The next morning, Ted nudged her awake and he said, hold me, I'm scared. She said that he cried as she held him and soon got up to got, and got dressed and went for a walk. So I forgot that this verdict was actually delayed for a little bit. So they did have um, 
quite a few days to kind of hang out together. I think they went to like the zoo. They went all kinds of different places. And each time Ted would just say stuff like, you know, I, I'm just freaked out. What if this is the last time I'll be able to do this? Or what if this is the last time that I'm going to be able to do that? And it's just very odd behavior in my opinion. Like if you're an innocent man, why are you so freaked out about all these certain places? I feel like, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of red flags for Liz <laughs> during this case. I mean, anybody could see those, but um, I do find it very strange that even at this point, she's not seeing that as strange. And just falling for this, oh, he's innocent, but he's going to be locked away for something that he didn't do. And I mean, like, I get that could happen, but I don't know, just at this point, really? After more and more time together and going out together and getting drunk, honestly, and then confessing their love for each other, they fell asleep and woke up early Monday morning so that they could get to court for the verdict. And Liz once again sat by Bundy's parents when the verdict was um, read. They all stood up as Judge Hansen entered, and after they were seated, the judge asked the defendant to please rise and step forward. And then Hansen read the verdict fast. Guilty. Mrs. Bundy let out a soft gasp and broke into tears, and as if outside of herself, Liz saw that she was crying too. Liz was so upset that she called the detectives and asked them their reasonings for this. Why pin this kidnap on him when they never took her seriously for the deaths that she called about in Seattle linking Ted? Liz says they made smart remarks about her change of heart and she hung up on them. And then Ted called her and told her that a standard interpretation of beyond a reasonable doubt given by a judge to a jury is... If after a consideration of an evidence you are 95% sure that the defendant is guilty, you must acquit. There isn't a reasonable, there is a reasonable doubt. Not even Carol Durant could have found me guilty. I am not. If Liz was not pushed over the edge yet, one of the same detectives that Liz had talked to asked Ted about his old girlfriend, Angie. Liz's best friend. Liz was so furious that this was not true. Angie was horrified to be called that. And on March 22, 1975, Ted was ordered by the judge to undergo a 90-day evaluation. Ted was moved to the Utah State Prison for a 90-day evaluation. The judge couldn't decide on prison or probation since so many pleaded his innocence. So he was sent to an evaluation to determine if he was violent or not. It was known that Ted could only have two visitors, his mother and his girlfriend. Yet Ted put Kim down for that spot. Liz was furious and wrote to Ted. He wrote back saying, Kim Andrews is a loyal and close friend. She has volunteered to do things for me, which no one else down here has volunteered to do. If she had replaced you, I would tell you. If I loved her and no longer loved you, I would tell you, but she hasn't and I don't. She really didn't feel a lot better about the situation. The psychologist didn't just evaluate Ted, but he also contacted family, friends, ex-girlfriends. For the most part, everyone said they couldn't believe Ted would ever do these things. But a couple of the past girlfriends claimed Ted had a dark side. One said that she went swimming with Ted once and out of the and out in the waves, Ted held her head under for a while in the water for a time, then let her up just to push her back under. As you guys know, this was Liz. The doctor also stated an event that caught his attention when Ted was around 14. He found out his birth certificate and the father section was unknown. And that was when he found out that he was an illegitimate and that his father wasn't actually his father. Ted's mother, Louise, became pregnant with Ted and lived in a home for unwed mothers where she had gave birth to him. 
She left him and didn't want to keep him. After returning home, Ted's grandfather, Louis's father, actually made her go back and get her own child. Although he denied it, that it ever bothered him, just kind of laughed it off, that wasn't what he said to Liz. He told Liz that he was very upset by it and brought it up any time he was depressed, and clearly this doctor could see right through that. Ted's grandfather happened to be abusive emotionally or physically, but again, Ted said it didn't bother him now. It was determined that Ted indeed was a violent man and that he would continue this violent life. There's a lot of letters from Ted during this evaluation of 90 days. He talks about how his EEG tests would come back and say that they were inadequate because um, he was not relaxed. And he said, I can't imagine how that's my fault. After all, aren't handcuffs, change, and leg irons conductive to relaxation? He would also start saying really depressing things um, to Liz, saying that the only reality I fight to preserve is you. You are my link to everything I hold dear. You keep me alive. Emotions of caring and loving. I love you and Molly. He told Liz that the psychologist gave him a test where pictures were shown and a story was told by me about each pictures. The last card was blank and I was the image and I was to imagine a picture. It was a picture of you in the kitchen and as I told it, tears began flowing uncontrollably down my face. I miss everything about you. And then in May, he wrote Liz saying, not to my surprise, the combined results of all my psychological and medical tests show me to be a normal, a completely normal. And the psychiatrist told me, he kept saying, very interesting. He also said that he believes me when I say I didn't do it. But being a loyal employee of the state, he asked me if it was possible I had forgotten it all. They never give up. He finally told her they had reached the end and now they're insinuating that I am a very complex and hard to know, which simply means that they have no basis to say that X caused Y kidnapping. He says the psychiatrist has been the most honest with him and that he said on two occasions that he can see nothing to suggest that I was in any way capable of committing such a crime. But it is known that the psychiatrist really has said that he's seen Ted as a violent man and that he did not think it was good for Ted to be let out because he thought that the violence would continue on and that Ted could not control it. Ted was sent to Utah State Prison. Headlines everywhere read, Bundy gets 1 to 15 years. Convicted kidnapper Theodore R. Bundy of Tacoma was sentenced to Salt Lake City to 1 to 15 years. And Judge Hansen reduced the charge from first degree to second degree count. A first degree charge would have called for a sentence of five years to life. Hansen said he reduced the charge because there were no other instances of criminal charges of a similar nature against Bundy. Bundy appeared in Hansen's court as his own attorney for part of the proceedings and argued that his 90-day psychiatric evaluation at the Utah State Prison was inaccurate. Bundy objected to the psychiatric evaluation, which described him as having an antisocial personality, harboring passive aggressiveness, being a private person, insecure, hostile, and being unable to handle stress. He just underwent nine months of the worst stress I've seen, and he handled it better than Mr. Nixon handled Watergate without breaking down, O'Connell said. Bundy also objected to the report's characterization of him being dependent on women. Who isn't dependent on women, he asked the judge. Bundy, who, had, who has spent the last 10 months in jail, told the judge before sentencing someday 
Who knows when, five to ten years in the future, when the time comes when I can leave, I suggest you ask yourself where you are. What's been accomplished? Was the sacrifice of my life worth it all? Although Liz's name was still not on the visitor list, she went to see him in September. It was September 1st of 1976. She told the guards she had been with him since 69 and was only going to be in Utah for a week, so he finally agreed. Liz and Ted exchanged small talk about life, Molly, his poetry, how she started dating someone. They kissed and cuddled, though. And Ted talked about his family and finally told Liz, I can't live in here. Something's going to happen soon. She told him not to cause more problems, and he said, each day living in here, I'm dying. I can't live like this. They changed the subject until Liz was told to leave. Liz told Ted that she would come back Friday before she left for Seattle, but at last minute told herself that she couldn't do it anymore. When she got back to Seattle, there was a letter from Ted waiting for her. He said, our two hours together was without a doubt the most emotionally intense experience of my life. I wouldn't trade the experience for anything in the world, though, unless I was offered my freedom to be with you. And then the next letter from him. If I sound bitter, it is because I am. This is not your problem any longer, as you well recognize. Perhaps I am too much of a sentimentalist, but as difficult as it would have been, I would have liked to say goodbye to you in person, kiss you one last time. Sunday, as I sat on the bench in the prison yard, basking in the sun, the fear grew with each hour. What a pathetic creature I must have appeared to be, watching, waiting. Then three o'clock arrived and 3.15, and 3.30, and 3.50, and finally 4. I waited until the bitter end. I imagined you driving to the airport and boarding the plane just a few miles away, and I was struck with the panic of a caged animal. I felt the suicidal urge to run at the barbed wire fence and run and run to say goodbye to you before the plane flew away from me forever. Crying, trembling, as the last minutes ticked away, I kept pleading softly to myself, please, Liz, please. Please don't leave me this way, I thought. Sunday was the most demoralizing day of my life. Sunday, I think I finally recognized how powerless and weak I am. On October 21st, 1976, while Ted was talking in the visitor section to his lawyer, Bruce, three men walked in with a warrant for his arrest and the murder of Karen Campbell in Colorado. Through a search warrant in Ted's apartment, a brochure of Willwood End was found. They passed it to police in Colorado, who then got gas slips that placed him a few miles from Karen the night she went missing. An eyewitness placed him on that elevator that same exact day. And this brochure they're talking about is the brochure that Ted had when he got off the plane and Liz seen. And he said, oh, just some guy on the plane gave this to me. He, of course, had to send Liz a letter and explain his innocence and say that things weren't going the way that they had planned. So now they're trying to drag Bundy under with something else. And he said, I'm innocent and they're going to frame their little heads off. And then he begged her to please try and believe him. He asked Liz to come to the trial and Liz told him she couldn't go through another one. She asked him to please understand. And in return, he sent her a poem. Into a raging river, you and I were tossed. Separately, we were swept along, trying desperately to save ourselves. I understand survival. I practice it myself. Neither of us has the strength to pull the other to the shore. A few days later, Ted was sentenced to 15 days in isolation. The hole, as he called it, for suspicion of attempting to escape. And he wrote to her and told her what happened. He said, on Tuesday afternoon, I was searched and my friend's social security card was found in my pocket. Later that afternoon, while I was resting in my cell on B block, several officers appeared and began searching my cell. With no further explanation, my things were packed and taken away and I was escorted to maximum security. I would try to explain more of the story to you, but I am not sure if these letters 
are read, it is sufficient to say that I never seriously planned or attempted to escape. The situation is frightfully depressing and distressing, especially in light of the fact that I had recently thoroughly adjusted myself to making the best of prison life in hopes of being released in the shortest period of time. Liz finally started writing back to him, said that she was glad that he was okay. She was very friendly with him, but still kind of standoffish as not wanting to get involved much further. Around Christmas time, he wrote her a letter filled with his love for her. And around Christmas time that year, Liz did go and see Ted again before he would be leaving for Colorado for the trial there. It was an hour of catching up that ended in a long embrace and kiss. Because she is getting sucked back in, you guys. I do apologize. There is a lot of notes here. And my mind is literally just like exploding with this case with how much I have ingested into my thought process the last couple of days with this case. Um, but we are now jumping into 1977, the end of January, and it was the Colorado trial. With Ted in Colorado, he was able to use the phone more and he stayed in contact with Liz. But by May, those calls got less as Liz started dating Ben. And in County Jail in Aspen, he got angry with the guard because he was treated like a prisoner and mistreated verbally. Ted was interviewed in jail and said he was working on his case. He is shown to look much different with longer hair and a full beard. He talks about the only time he gets out to walk is 50 yards with officers to the library to research info for his case. He said he feels great without a doubt that he is not guilty, and in the interview, he is found laughing and joking. When asked if he ever harmed anyone, he says no. And when asked if he ever thinks about getting out of here and laughingly, he says, well, legally, sure. For weeks, Ted hyped himself up for an escape. He started jumping off the top bunk in his cell, strengthening the muscles in his legs again and again. He also says on his walk to the library, he would mentally measure the distance to the alleyway and the alleyway to the riverbed to the mountains. He would run in circles in his cell preparing himself. Uh, guys, if you guys have seen pictures of the cell that he was in, it was tiny. Just thinking about how he prepared for this is just literally insane. He got a haircut and practiced changing clothes as fast as he could. And then in Aspen, Colorado, June 7th, 1977, Ted was in the law library while the guards were standing outside. His lawyer wasn't present with him either. He made a call to Liz and then he jumped the two-story distance from the window to the ground. Someone from the first story yelled that someone jumped from the second floor. Sheriffs took off looking for him, and roadblocks were set up immediately checking every car. Two days in, people were on horseback with rifles out looking in the woods and mountainsides for him. With a sweater he left behind, canine dogs were able to trace him to a bridge before his scent disappeared. He stayed nearby in the mountains for five days until he was captured again. The cold front and rainstorm came in and forced Ted to go back to Aspen. He found a cabin where he ate and then went into Aspen to find a car to flee. He broke into the car and I'm assuming was trying to get out of Aspen and maybe seen um, a roadblock ahead searching vehicles. So he did a U-turn and that's actually what got him pulled over. A few days later, he called Liz. He didn't want to talk about escaping or other than joking about jumping from a window and wandering around in the woods. She told him she was seeing someone and needed space. So he wrote her a letter. He said that he would never be able to accept the reality of, some, of her loving and touching and laughing with someone else, but said that he had the understanding that her happiness was 
um, his ultimate concern so that he understood. Ted called the psychiatrist from his 90-day evaluation about the escape, too. He said he was just so tired of being locked up and wanted freedom. Now Bundy was facing charges of escaping. A little after that, Ben broke up with Liz, who started talking to Ted even more again, and Ted sent more poetry and love letters. Liz kept up the relationship as she also moved on with her career and life, and Ted called one day to talk and mentioned a friend. When Liz asked who he was talking about, he tried to play it off and kind of dance around the answer, but she knew it was a woman. But at the time, she thought, he's locked up. What, what's the harm there? She did later discover that it was Carol Boone. Ted wrote to Liz about his pain and death and as he waited for his trial. He soon was granted a change of venue and the trial would be in Colorado Springs. Liz got a letter from Ted saying there would be no goodbyes and that no matter what happens, he wanted her to know he loved her and her memory was always with him. Around Christmas, he called Liz in Utah where she was visiting her parents for Christmas. He was very serious and said he just wanted to hear her voice again. She was upset saying, you can't call here. I don't want my parents to know that I'm still in contact with you because obviously like she shouldn't be in contact and I feel like at this point she just knew better and it was just so hard for her to let go of the Ted that she once knew. On December 30th, 1977, in the evening, a guard brought Ted his dinner and left. The next morning, the guard noticed Ted's food uneaten, and Ted appeared to be in his cot sleeping. The guard was suspicious, so he pulled back the covers, and it was just a pile of books. Ted was gone again. Ted had been slimming down by barely eating and getting down to around 140 pounds. He climbed up through a hole in the ceiling where his light was. Above the light was an apartment to one of the jailers. He changed into the jailer's clothes and walked out the front door a free man. Liz got the call of Led being gone on New Year's Eve. Detective Keppel, one of the main detectives on this case, he called and he said he's gone. No one knows where he is. There's an eight-hour gap from when we've last seen him. And this rolled us right into 1978. The search is on once again for Ted Bundy. The police were getting desperate, calling Liz, Ted's friends, his mother, etc., and threatening everyone with arrest if they knew anything about his whereabouts. Ted became one of the FBI's most wanted men on January 14, 1978, in Tallahassee, Florida, at the Florida State University Chi Omega House. An intruder broke in and found Margaret Bowman, 21, asleep in bed. Her skull was caved in while she slept and a nylon stocking wrapped around her throat had been pulled with such force it nearly broke her neck. The intruder moved down the hall to Lisa Levy's room, who was 20 years old. Her roommate was away at the time. She had multiple injuries. Her collarbone was broken. She had been strangled. The intruder was extremely rough with her, ripping places of skin forcing a hairspray bottle into her body and a bite mark was found on the left part of her butt, which actually helped the police later on in this case of evidence. She was still alive with no pulse when she was found and unfortunately she passed away before she made it to the hospital. And then on down the hall to Karen Chandler, who was 21, and Kathy Kleiner, who was 21, room. Kathy was awoken by the door opening up, but was kind of groggy, not fully awake. I've seen interviews from her where she has said that she looked up and seen a figure dressed in complete black, just kind of standing over her. She never seen his face, and then a club came down on her. 
And this club was actually a piece of wood that was picked up back from the wood pile behind this sorority house. He bashed her in the face with it. She was found sat up in bed with multiple lacerations to her face and head. Her jaw had been broken multiple times, but she did survive her injuries. She said that halfway through her attack, this intruder noticed that her roommate Karen was waking up. So he went over to Karen, where he started mercilessly beating her. He realized that Kathy was still alive and went back and hit her once more. Kathy then says that the angel of light came. She said that their room faced the back of the sorority home where the parking lot was and a car had pulled in and its headlights shone through. Through all the beatings, she couldn't see very well, but she seen a bright light shine through and Ted left. Karen appeared in the hallway delirious. The intruder had fractured her skull, broken her jaw, and multiple teeth. If that wasn't already it... Eight blocks away, a call came in while police were at the Chi Omega house that there was some unusual sounds coming from a duplex. The person who lived in the duplex said that the other person who lived next door in the same duplex sounded like they were really being beat up. An intruder had broken into that side of the duplex and had found Cheryl Thomas, who was 21 years old. The noises that all of Cheryl's neighbors were hearing were the thumps of him smashing her head, and it was heard throughout the large house. She suffered serious head wounds, including multiple skull fractures, a broken jaw, and her shoulder dislocated. Amazingly, she survived with life-changing injuries, including permanent hearing loss in one ear and cranial nerve damage that will forever affect her and ended her dancing career. The other girls couldn't sleep in the house for weeks. Helicopters and police watched the house at night. Counties in Florida were going crazy buying stores out. Sounds pretty familiar, right about now. But for real though, they thought a crazy person was on the loose, so they got what they needed and they stayed home locked up and secured. On February 9th, 1978, in Lake City, Florida, a small town, Kimberly Leach, who was 12, went missing. The search began for Kimberly on foot and in the air with no signs of her. Kimberly was at her PE lesson when she asked her teacher if she could retrieve her purse from her last lesson as she had forgotten it. After retrieving her purse, she was spotted being led away from the school grounds by an irate man. Nobody reported anything, thinking it was probably her father. Once her actual father became aware that she hadn't attended the rest of her classes that day and he hadn't removed her from school himself, police recalled, a lengthy search concluded and she continued to be a missing person. In February, Ted made it to Pensacola Beach and remembered the day of laying out on the beach and thinking, what a way to start 1978. And 45 days of missing, on February 15, 1978, there was a high-speed chase. A man was arrested claiming he was a Florida State University student. The police started trying to figure out who this man was. He was caught in a stolen Volkswagen. Man, he really has a thing for Volkswagens had 21 stolen credit cards from Florida State University students, and he refused to give them his name. He finally told them that he was a 29-year-old named Kenneth Meisner from Tallahassee. He even had an ID to prove it until the real Ken Meisner called in and said that wasn't him. He was held without bond for, for refusing to identify himself. He really did look different at first with having a mark and what looked like a shiner, almost with a part on his face swollen. Maybe from the car chase? I'm not really sure, but when he talks, it's hard to not know that it's him. Um, you have to keep in mind that back then it was like the lack of technology at the time with trying to figure out um, who a person really was. You know, you're not even, I mean, you're talking about 
a phone call or um, a letter in the mail, that type of ordeal. So they had a hard time trying to figure out exactly who this person was. And Florida had never messed with Ted Bundy's case. There was nothing to go off of besides the weird fact that the car was stolen near the G Omega house. He was then questioned and he refused to talk. Ted was going insane, finally agreed to reveal his identity for one phone call to no one other than Liz. February 21st, 1978, Molly, Liz's daughter, accepted the charges and handed the phone to her mom saying, I didn't know what to do, so I accepted the charges, and Ted's on the phone. He said he was in custody and she asked where. He said Florida. He repeated over and over that it was going to be really ugly when it broke up to the press in the morning. She asked if he meant it about the Chi Omega attacks. He said he didn't want to talk about that. He wanted to talk to her without others being able to listen in and really tell her about him. She asked if he was trying to tell her that he was sick and he got really angry and told her to back off. The following Saturday, he called her again and told her that he was sick and that he was consumed by something that he didn't understand and that he couldn't contain it. He had spent so much time trying to maintain a normal life and he couldn't do it. He said he was preoccupied with this force. Liz asked if he ever wanted to kill her, and he said yes, and that he once tried. He said there was one time when he was really trying hard to control it. He said, I'd be staying off the streets and trying to feel normal, but it just happened that I was sleeping with you at your house when I felt it coming on. I closed the damper so the smoke couldn't go up the chimney, and then I left and put a towel in the crack under the door so the smoke would stay in the apartment. Liz said she remembered this night well. Um, she had been pretty drunk, and by the time they climbed into the hide-a-bed in the front of the fireplace, she woke up briefly as Ted was leaving, and he told me he was going back to his house to get his fan because the fireplace was backed up. I had heavily pulled the covers over my head because I couldn't breathe, but soon I couldn't breathe under the covers either. My eyes were running, and I was coughing. I jumped out of bed and threw open the nearest window and struck, stuck my head out. After I had recovered some, I opened all the windows and the doors and broke up the fire to the best I could. I had gotten on Ted the next day for not coming back with the fan. As he told me now that he had really wanted me to die that night, I almost didn't believe him. It didn't fit in with the murders. I thought that maybe he wasn't willing to talk about any more serious attempts to kill me. She told him that she sometimes wondered if he used her to touch base with the reality, like the night Carol Durant was kidnapped, or the night that Debbie Kent vanished and he called her at midnight, or taking her out for hamburgers after what happened at Lake Sammamish. And he said, yeah, that's a pretty good guess. It's like it's over. I don't have a split personality. I don't have blackouts. I remember everything I've done, like Lake Sammamish. We went out to Farrell's for ice cream after eating hamburgers. It wasn't like I hadn't forgotten or couldn't remember, but it was just over, gone. The force wasn't pushing me anymore. I don't understand it. The force would just consume me. Like one night, I was walking by the campus and I followed the sorority girl. I didn't want to follow her. I didn't do anything but follow her, and that's how it ha was. I'd be out late at night and follow people like that. I tried not to be that way, but i just do it anyway. She asked, what about Brenda Ball? I remember you took my family and me out to pizza that night and then hurried away only to be late for Molly's baptism the next day. Is that where you were? He mumbled something she couldn't understand. He said, it's pretty scary, isn't it? She said, but the police are saying that the murder started in 1969. That's the year we met. What was it that made it start in 69? He said, the police were years off. She said, I thought if you ever got free, you'd never so much as jaywalk to stay free. And now this is Flor and now this in Florida? He said, I know, me too. I loved my freedom, but I have a sickness, a disease like your alcoholism. Yeah, let's compare alcoholism to fucking murder. You can't take another drink, and with my sickness, there is something that I just can't 
be around and I know it now. She asked him what that was and he said, don't make me say it. Throughout the conversation, he kept um, telling me that she never had to worry about Molly or herself. He talked about the responsibility to society and again, arranging things so that he would be back in Washington State. He wished things were different. And, um, she told him that he was doing the right thing and that, um, she would pray for him. And then they hung up. She said she didn't learn until later that Ted would be charged with murdering Kimberly Leach, a 12 year old girl, the same age as her young daughter, Molly. She said, I didn't understand Ted Bundy and I never will. Ted was caught and told them about his journey. He got on a bus after escaping to Denver, got on a plane to Chicago, took an Amtrak train to Ann Arbor to watch a Washington State University football game out of all things. He got beat up at a bar there. He spent the night in a church, stole a car the next day, and drove all the way to Atlanta where he abandoned the car. Then a bus to Tallahassee. Ted said he went to Florida to be on the whole other side. He became the number one suspect for the sorority murders. Ted went as far to rent out a room not far from the Chi Omega house. It was another building where he knew the woman across the hall and had even taken her out to dinner during this time. They'd started tracking the stolen credit cards and found that some were used where he stayed at a place near the school where Kimberly Leach was abducted from. About a month later, Kimberly Leach's body was found. She was discovered in a pig pen 40 miles outside the city. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. The detective said it was the worst thing that they had ever seen in their career. In April of 1978, Ted was told that he was linked to the cases. He still denied them. He was trying to find out where to start with how many cases he was linked to. Their first step was locking him in a secure jail with three locks in Florida. The main detective handling the Florida cases went to Bundy and told him they were going for a drive. After loading up and switching a couple times into different cars and vans, they arrived and Ted was furious to see three dentists waiting for him. He didn't know they had the impressions from Lisa Levy's bite mark. He screamed they couldn't do this and until he was shown the warrant form. He then changed and said, you know, I'm not a violent person and do what you need to. And he let them. In May, Liz got a call from Ted that was weird, and she felt like he tried saying, with developments in the case, he spoke too soon to her about his sickness. She was sick to her stomach and knew she never wanted this man in her life again. He was supposed to make things right, but now he was fighting it. In June, Liz got a letter from Ted forwarded to her from Carol Boone of Ted, telling her he was told she had been talking to the police about him. And in this letter, he said, from a purely factual perspective, the reports filtering back to me reveal what you allegedly told these people and what I told you over the phone that night from Pensacola are two very different accounts. I still cannot imagine you broadcasting the conversation we had. While I will not pretend to be Prince Charming, I do think it's fair to say that for two and a half years now, I have done everything to keep your name out of the news and avoid embarrassment for you. Several friends and reporters have called me a fool since they believe that you were in some way responsible for the things that are happening to me. But if you did go to the police, you went to them thinking they might be able to use what you thought you had heard. What if, dear Elizabeth, the King County authorities were desperate enough to charge me based on your representations? Do you want to hurt me so badly that you would twist the truth to see me swing from some wooden beam by my neck? All I am saying is that you could have gotten yourself in much hot water, and you are fortunate that what you thought you had was of no value to the police. If you did what I have been told you did, you were not thinking of your welfare or Molly's or your parents or your new life. 
July 7th of 1978, Ted was told the jurors had indicted him for the murders in the famous video in front of the press. It was made out to be a show. Ted paces, smiling and saying, I plead not guilty. He also makes a scene of trying to talk to the press, and when he is turned down, he has said, well, of course not. I'm gagged. You're not. And now on May 9th, 1979, the, fin the first trial made public by cameras, and TV was a huge deal. There was someone from each state there broadcasting. The lawyer appointed to Ted was uncomfortable working with him but had no choice. He finally told Ted to make a plea deal so Ted would just get prison for life instead of the death penalty. This deal leaked to the public and spread like wildfire. June 1st, 1971, Ted shocked everyone by sabotaging any chance of getting a plea deal with his speech. He told the courtroom he was never going to plead guilty and that his lawyer told him that he was guilty. His lawyer tried to bow out, but the judge didn't want any more delays, so he didn't allow it. Bundy was so fixated on being involved that he was appointed co-counsel so he could work his own case, even though he wasn't even a lawyer. July 1st, 1978, the trial starts as it moves to Miami from Tallahassee since too many of the jurors knew too much. Bundy got another lawyer sent his way during the trial. The judge still ruled Ted competent to stand in trial and run the defense. Instead of the case, Ted started asking for a change in his life. The food he was getting at the prison, exercise time, wanting a typewriter, etc., the judge went to check out the cell and let Bundy be moved to another location. The officer who found the woman at Chi Omega was put on the stand, and after the standard questions from the state, Ted surprised everyone by stepping up and asking for details of these women and what they looked like and in detail what happened to them. And it was a very disturbing um, ordeal for everyone. Even looking at these tapes on the Netflix's uh, Ted Bundy tapes, it is very disturbing to even see this part of the trial. Nita Neary, who also lived in the Chi Omega, took the stand and described the man who broke in. She pointed out Ted Bundy. Her testimony went as uncertain because she couldn't say she saw every detail about this man. After she left the courtroom, Ted ranted publicly about one of his attorneys who got up and left, and as he did, the judge amounts to everyone, and then there were three, and Ted laughed. Carol Boone, during this time, is referred to as his girlfriend. She was present at his trial saying that he is innocent and quoted... Let me put it this way. I don't think Ted deserves to be in jail. The things in Florida don't concern me any more than the things out west do. I don't think they had reason to charge Ted Bundy of murder. But in this trial, the bite marks came into the picture and changed everything of everything for the standbyers who thought that he was innocent. The case made to the jurors was so good that even Ted knew it didn't look good. The next day, Ted was absent. The guard from the jail came to tell the judge how he tried to wake Ted and Ted wouldn't get up. He tried to unlock the cell. He noticed that Ted had wet toilet paper and wedged it into the lock so it wouldn't unlock. The judge said if he wasn't there by 9.30, they would continue without him, and Ted showed up right before 9.30. He was told off by the judge about following schedule in front of everyone. Ted fought it to fought it, saying that he was held in awful conditions that kept him stressed. While saying that Ted was shaking his pointer finger at the judge, which pissed the judge off. It was then led into jokes and court went on. And on July 24th, 1978, the trial's closing arguments, defense makes the argument that this man is innocent and is going to go to jail for having crooked teeth. 
The state told the jurors that this man thinks he's smart enough to get away with this. Give him the mercy he gave to Margaret and Lisa, which was absolutely none. At 3 p.m., the jurors went behind closed doors, and six and a half hours later, they had their minds made up. The verdict guilty of all seven charges, including three charge attempted murders and two counts of first-degree murder, which could be tried for the electric chair. Louise Bundy took the stand to fight for her son's life. The judge tells Bundy to step forward and states, the court finds both of these killings were indeed heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and that they were extremely wicked, shockingly evil, vile, and the product of a design to inflict a high degree of pain and utter indifference to human life. This court, independent of, but in agreement with, the advisory sentence rendered by the jury does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant, Theodore Robert Bundy. The judge then adds, as Ted is being escorted out, take care of yourself, young man, and I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It's a tragedy for this court to see such a total waste. I think of the humanity I have experienced in this court. You're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer. I would have loved to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. Take care of yourself. I don't have any animosity towards you. I want you to know that. <sighs> so mad because, I mean, it's not like he brutally killed several women. It makes me so mad because it's like he just just like proven guilty for brutally killing several women. And he has the like nerve to say that in front of all of these families. And I mean, this was like aired. I mean, the videos out there, like all these women who were attacked, all these families of these women who are no longer here, like literally heard him say that to Ted Bundy, like, are you fucking kidding me? November 1978, Kimberly Leach trial began. People were confused on why this was a thing with Bundy already having the death penalty, but what they were thinking was let's double this so that he has no wiggle room for anything. Evidence was good with this case they had on him. There was an eyewitness who saw him put her in a white van, and in the van there was a blood stain, the same blood type of Kimberly. There was numerous fibers from Kimberly's clothes in the van, and a fiber from Bundy's blazer was found on Kim's clothes. There was shoe tracks found as well. Bundy defended himself, and this was the infamous moment where Bundy called Boone to the stand and asked her about his character. This is where the impromptu wedding came in, and Ted asked, Carol, do you want to marry me? And Carol says, yes. Ted says, and I want to marry you. Ta-da, they were married. A trial of a murder of a 12-year-old little girl, and you're taking this time for a wedding. It was seen more as another tactic by Bundy. Would they really give him a verdict on the same day as his wedding? But the final statements were done anyways, and Ted inappropriately held his arms out and compared himself to Jesus, which did not sit well with the jury, who had the verdict by the next morning. Guilty of first degree. Penalty, death. Bundy sat with his back to the judge during the reading. Then he stood up and said, you tell the jury they were wrong. And the judge said, that's denied. 1980, on death row, Ted reached out to speak to a journalist, Stephen, tell him the story and once again to prove his innocence. But Ted didn't want to talk about cases and women, but more so about his life as a kid and how he grew up. He then goes on to say that any... Everyone always wants a cause for the way people are. Does something happen to them when they were a child, he said. That's bullshit. There's nothing in my background that would lead one to believe that I was capable of committing murder. He was asked, absolutely nothing, and Ted said, absolutely nothing. 
This interview went on for weeks and little info was came out about these cases until finally this guy thought, well, I'm going to try talking to Ted in a third person, seeing if this third person, um, maybe he would spill everything. And when he told Ted of this, Ted grabbed the tape recorder and just starts talking in third person. He claimed that this person was hoping to be fulfilled and kept hoping that maybe the next time he would be fulfilled or maybe the next, and each time he wasn't. Ted claimed it all started as a pornography addiction with the mixture of violence from being insecure and being rejected in the past. Stephen says once he would get to talking about the crimes for long periods, his piercing blue eyes would turn black. When asked about Taylor Mountain, Ted still talked in third person, but said this was the perfect place since the animals would help him with the job of disposing the bodies. In 1981, in Florida State Prison, Ted was on death row and was still claiming he was not guilty. He said guilt was a mechanism to control people and that it was an illusion. He stayed doped up by drugs that Carol, his wife, would sneak in vaginally and he would take them back to his cell rectally. Carol wanted a child and after talking to a guard, she started getting visits where she was able to sleep with Ted. Rosa Bundy came to be, bless her heart. She would come visit her dad, serial killer Ted Bundy, at prison with her mommy. Family pictures were shared, trying to make him look normal and family-friendly. Some of those involved with the cases started talking about a book. And when talking to Ted about it, he said, put whatever you want as long as it sells. They went to see him with a tape recorder for weeks. He never confessed, but he always talked in third person about how this person might kill these women step by step. The detectives with these recordings, went to visit Ted's parents and let them know about the books. They started playing the tape of Ted explaining one of the murders. Ted's mother started weeping while listening to her son talk about killing. And when the tape recorder turned off, she lifted her head and had a smile on her face and said, is anyone up for ice cream and apple pie? It was a total Brie Vandekamp moment. And yes, I have been binge watching back through Desperate Housewives. So if you have not seen Desperate Housewives, you have no idea what I'm meaning. I promise we are coming towards the end here, you guys. This part I told you was going to be super long. I appreciate if you guys have listened this long, though. Um, the FBI did take advantage of having Ted and actually came to him um, in 1984 to talk to him about new technology um, of a computer database on how to outthink future and current serial killers. And Ted actually offered a lot of advice on what they're not looking at um, in serial killers or people who have those tendencies. In 1986, a new attorneys came forward to fight death penalties and took Ted's case because they believe his trials were a mess with him being his own defense. They soon found out his diagnosis of bipolar disorder and depression and knew they could work with that as well and build the case. And in November of 1986, Ted won the appeal to delay the death penalty. So he still was on death row, but um, the appeal to delay it did go over and he won that. And from what I've gathered from the different docu-series that I've seen is that once a death um, penalty delay appeal happens, like if they win, um, it's usually like a two to three year like delay. So now we're in 1988 and another death penalty delay is granted. The victim's families started speaking out and a nationwide outrage was 
I mean, just all over the place. People were so mad. How could he still be alive after all the things that he had done? I do think it's crazy that Ted wanted like a delay because I mean, in all of his letters to Liz, he's like, you know, I'd rather have death than um, to be stuck in this prison. So I did find that weird. I think maybe at this point being um, locked away, it's hard to say. I'll get back to that thought in a second if I remember, but I do want to go ahead and finish up here. Um, we're at 1989 and January 20th, 1989, they were fighting it again and lost his appeal. A new death warrant was signed, and on January 21st, 1989, Ted was scheduled to die three days later and decided he was ready to confess all unsolved cases. He thought this was a good way to delay his execution longer. On January 22nd, detectives were called from the cases and told that Ted wanted to talk and confess. When asked how many homicides he was involved in, Ted answered, they came up with 30. Ted named the states, California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and Florida between 1973 and 1978. Asked of the 30, how many were buried? Ted says, that's a big question. Gee, 10? Of the 30, how many of them were severed at their heads? And Ted said at least half a dozen. Some of the audio of the confession was whispered, and it's so terrifying to listen to. Ted states he took full responsibility for the murders. Ted's mother states how awful it is and how she has daughters herself and how awful she would feel to be in that spot. She also says he wasn't raised that way. On January 23rd, 1989, the call came to Ted that there was no more appeals and he would die in the morning. Crowds poured in. Some film crews from news stations, others were crowds ready to celebrate. It was said that you could hear them inside the prison. They were so loud, chanting, burn, Bundy, burn. There were fireworks, and men on the inside asked Ted if he heard them, and Ted said, they're crazy. They think I'm crazy. Listen to all of them. Actual merch was there being sold, t-shirts and pens. I mean, everything that you can think of was being sold for this execution day. And on January 24th, 1989, 5 a.m., he had steak and eggs as his last meal. Ted Bundy's last words were, sorry, he had caused so much trouble, and he was executed by the electric chair. So I do want to go back to what I was saying before, and um, I think uh, Ted's way of um, dancing around trying to get this delay on the death penalty was maybe the fact that... Um, you know, I thought maybe it was because, you know, he had a daughter and a wife and stuff, but uh, Carol actually divorced him, I believe, in 86, and she said that that was when she had actually realized that, oh man, he actually did kill those women, and that's why she left him. And since then, it's been said that Carol and um, Rosa, well, Carol has changed her and Rosa's name, apparently, and they have not been seen again, is what I have gathered. I've tried to dig for any information on them and have not found any. There is definitely tons and tons of video outlets out there and interviews of um, people from the sorority houses who uh, miraculously lived through um, their attacks from Ted Bundy. Um, as well as Carol DeRanch. There is books. There is a book by Ann Rule. I unfortunately have not read it. She actually worked with Ted for quite a while. Um, the book that I have talked about, The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy by Liz Kendall and her daughter Molly. Um, it is a, is a really good read, and that's why it's part of the giveaway. Again, if you haven't checked that out, make sure you do, because it does end tomorrow. Um, but yeah, it's a really good read, and um, I like that it now is a new version, so it has like the old intro and outro, but it also has a new 
um, one from uh, Liz kind of explaining where she kind of went wrong with this book because this book was actually written, I believe, oh, let me double check that. The newest edition, like the updated version, actually is very, very new. Um, but the original was published in 1981. So Ted was actually still alive on death row at this time. And it's crazy to think like if he had known of the book or heard of it, if Carol had told him about it, if she had read it, if maybe even Ted had read it. It's crazy to think about um, all of that. But um, the new version of it actually has the very back of the book is a section from words from Molly, Liz's daughter, and what she remembers of being a little girl and being around Ted Bundy. And although it seemed like a really good time, there's actually a lot of really dark and twisted things that went on there. And I don't really want to say too much. I know that I've said a lot from this book and there was just so much gold in this book that I felt like it needed to be said in this. And that's where I really did do a lot of my digging for this case to make it so drawn out and as detailed as possible. Um, but she does talk about very disturbing times when um, her mom was at those late night classes and Ted would watch her and they would play hide and seek and he would take all of his clothes off. And I mean, just some very weird things. The way he used to hold her, he would kind of hold her like, you know how some people um, will hold their babies, like um, their arm around their belly and then like their hand like on the crotch area to kind of if you didn't know, um, kind of to re relieve some or kind of have like pressure on the belly to help relieve like a stomach ache or something like that. I know it sometimes worked with my babies. He would actually hold Molly like that though when she was like quite a bit older and um, Liz said it, she would even get mad and say, you know, don't don't hold her like that. That's not, you shouldn't do that. And Ted would just be like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I didn't realize, you know, just stupid stuff like that. So again, more red flags, but um, it is a really good read. I definitely recommend checking it out. You do shake your head quite a bit in it like, oh man, and but you can definitely tell that Liz now, uh, I mean, just reading through it, she said how much she just could not believe as well. But it is really cool that it was written back then. So I mean, just, I mean, years, not even 10 years after all of this was happening. Um, and so kind of like her fresh thoughts on everything and now seeing her updated of being a lot older and a lot wiser. I also wanted to add here real quick about the ski brochure. So I had mentioned the ski brochure and about how Ted told Liz that he got it from a guy off the plane, but come to find out it was from where he actually was um, when he murdered Karen. But there's also the whole ordeal with the bike that Ted gave to his brother. You remember that reward that was out from the family of the girl that was killed at Lake Sammamish? Kind of weird how those two kind of play together. And then I also forgot to add when I first recorded this about the very last letter that was sent to Liz from Ted. It was actually a letter that was sent to her when he was about to be executed. He sent her, I guess, like a goodbye letter in a way. And her daughter Molly, who was much older at the time, came home and found the letter first. She said that she didn't even read it. She threw it in the fireplace and never told her mom about it. Later on, um, Liz had actually talked to somebody and they had asked her about the letter and asked if she had gotten it. And that's where she had to confront Molly about it and found out that there was a goodbye letter and that she never read. 
and she said that she doesn't hold any hard feelings towards Molly about it because she knew that Molly was only looking out for her and Molly didn't want her going down a dark path again um, and spiraling out because of everything. They tried to just not think of it and they tried to have just a regular day on the day of the execution. And um, I know that that had been a really hard thing for them because although he was a monster in everyone's eyes, to them at one point in their life, he wasn't. He was just their Ted. So my heart goes out to them. I feel so bad for them throughout this whole story. And I just thought it was really interesting and I wanted to throw it in here. But with with that being said, also check out Falling for a Killer, the Ted Bundy Amazon Prime. It also has Liz and Molly Kendall and as well as Carol Durange and some other women as well speaking out. It was a really good docuseries. I really enjoyed watching that one. I like seeing it more from the women's perspective in this and not so much Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix. It still is a pretty good one to watch. Um, and I do recommend if you haven't seen it, it is uh, cool actually seeing the actual Ted Bundy tapes and hearing um, his tapes and what he had to say but um, if you read the book and watch Falling for a Killer and then you watch the conversations with the killers you see a lot of the loopholes there and where um, Liz would get very irritated on how she was kind of just ran around and not really gotten to the point about what she was trying to do in the first place like she always had that feeling and it's like if they would have took taken her seriously then I get you know there's so many cases out there but if they would have taken her seriously the first 15,000 times that she had called him, I mean, how many lives would have been saved right there? It is very ugh, sad and gruesome to think about, but it, I mean, it really is. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's hard for me to take a lot of the people seriously on the conversations with a killer because some of it, they're, some of the timelines just don't even match up. And, you know, they'll try to say like, oh, and we did this and we already had a file going on him. And it's like... I don't really think Liz has anything else to really lie about. I mean, she put all of her faults out there on the line. And, I mean, you're shaking your head at her no matter what anyway. So, I don't really see why she would lie on some of the timelines like that. But, hey, that's just me. You guys can let me know what you guys think over on my Instagram, at Caffeine Crime Podcast, on the post of today. Let me know what you guys think. Yeah, again, I know this is very, very long. But I hope you guys really enjoyed uh, part one and two of Ted Bundy. We are done with Ted Bundy. I am so done. <laughs> um, but my brain is not done being fried just yet because I'm going to be jumping into my next serial killer and I'll be back here next Tuesday with another part one. And you guys will have to wait and stay tuned to my Instagram. I'm going to be having some more pictures coming soon. Um, giving you guys a little bit of maybe a sneak peek, maybe not. I don't know yet. You guys might just get it on the day where it goes up of um, what serial killer we'll be discussing next. But like always, let me know what you think over at my Instagram. Also, don't forget to leave me a rating. Um, I would really appreciate it and let me know what you think there. But yeah, thank you guys so much. I appreciate all the love and support you guys have on my podcast and I'm really excited about this season. I'm glad that I started off with Ted Bundy. I know it's a very well-known case, but I still love to do all the digging and throw all this together and put it out there for you guys. So yeah, I will see you guys next week on season two, episode three. And it will be a part one, but I'm not telling you guys what yet. <laughs> I'll see you guys then. Oh.